What bitter memories turned a Vietnam War fighter into a man in search of peace? What message does such a man extend on Veterans Day? When the needs of the working class come in conflict with the desires of the privileged elite, who do the brave men and women of the Canadian forces stand behind? Is the real story behind Canada at war about fighting for freedom and democracy, or fighting for empire? On a special week, when we focus on honoring fallen comrades in past wars, this ep- edition of the Global Research News Hour takes a determined decision to remember war in all its horror, including the lies concealing the true goals on the part of the victors. In our first half hour, we are joined by veteran-turned-peace activist Brian Wilson, uh, who will explain what he learned and what he experienced. And in our second half hour, we will hear about Eve Engler and his latest book, which follows the history of Canada's fighting force and how the myths of heroism and valor frequently don't match the reality. On this week's program, war memories not heard on mainstream media, lest we forget. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 12th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners to access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. UK lawyer and military veteran Anna de Buissere urges us to have hope, quote, because we are going to win this, unquote. Even in times of war, she explains, quote, you don't get to experiment on prisoners of war, unquote. And that is what our governments are currently doing by imposing experimental jabs and myriad, quote unquote, COVID measures on domestic populations. Our governments and their agencies are committing genocide and crimes against humanity, she explains, and, quote, silence is a crime, unquote. You don't get to say, quote, I was following orders, unquote. That comes from an article with the headline, Video, Legal Action is Happening, Have Hope Because We Are Going to Win This, by Anna de Buissere, posted November 11th, originally posted on Mark Taliano's website. Mandatory COVID vaccines could drive out tens of thousands of NHS staff, leading to pressure on services, the government has admitted. A government... Analysis has predicted 73,000 NHS workers and 35,000 care workers will not have had their COVID-19 jab by the time mandatory vaccines come into force on 1st of April next year. It is warned, quote, any reduction in the numbers of health and social care staff may lead to reduced or 
delayed services. The health system is currently stretched with an elective waiting list of 5.72 million and high levels of vacancies. Unquote. Quote, if a proportion of staff decides to leave the NHS, this would put pressure on NHS services. Unquote. That comes from the article Britain's NHS to lose tens of thousands of staff over mandatory COVID vaccines by Rebecca Thomas, post-November 10th, originally published in The Independent. What is worth noting is that none of the media reports regarding the athletes have raised the issue of the vaccine. For our well-informed reader who knows that the COVID-19 experimental biologics are not safe, it's no surprise that many people have died or suffered life-altering damages after being coerced into being injected. The casualties and loss of life are nothing short of a nightmarish tragedy. Sadly, athletes who have received the injection are not spared either. Here's a list of some of the young athletes who have died or been hospitalized after being vaccinated. That comes from the article, Athletes suffer cardiac arrest, myocarditis, blood clots, hospitalized after COVID injections. By Dr. Mark Trozzi, posted November 10th, originally published in the Trozzi Report. Edward Curtin returns to discuss deep politics and what links the assassination of JFK, 9-11, and COVID-19. No president since Kennedy has dared to buck the military-industrial complex, including Trump, who is part of the same system that produced both Obama and Biden. He discusses the 1967 CIA memo, which told mainstream media to use the disparaging term conspiracy theory to quell all deviation from the official narrative, and how this propaganda technique has continued to function from JFK to 9-11 to COVID-19. Many of the same actors involved in the MIC and 9-11 continue to be involved with the drug companies CDC, WEF, WHO, Gates Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation. It's very obvious, but the story is so frightening, people don't want to do any homework. That comes from the article, There is a direct link between JFK, 9-11, and COVID-19, Edward Curtin by Edward Curtin and Geopolitics and Empire, posted November 10th, originally published on Geopolitics and Empire. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This Remembrance Week, I decided to seek the story of a veteran but with a strong stance against war, and I found one. Brian Wilson, as a first lieutenant, served as a commander of a U.S. Air Force Combat Security Police Unit in Vietnam's Mekong Delta in 1969. After leaving the war, he was he's become a peace activist and a trained lawyer. He wrote a psychohistorical memoir, Blood on the Tracks, The Life and Times of S. Brian Wilson, and he writes on the site Wilson with two L's, dot com. He is also a longtime member of Veterans for Peace. 
just to start off, could you talk about your role in Vietnam and, and the incident that basically turned you around? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in a, a <clears throat> special Air Force unit called Operation Safe Side, which was formed after the Tet of 68 um, because the Air Force didn't think that their bases in Vietnam had been adequately protected by the uh, Marines and the Army. So they wanted to train a special unit that was more uh, combat oriented, I guess. And uh, our trainers were trained from by the uh, Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia, but we were training at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I had no interest in the, in the assignment. Um, but in 1969, I was sent with 40 men to join 530 other men in our squadron that was travel that were spread around the country in 10 different locations. And essentially, I participated in security of an air base, uh, two air bases, uh, which means protecting the personnel and the airplanes from Zapper attacks, mortar attacks, uh, rocket attacks. Um, it wasn't nearly as dangerous as being in the army, um, which was I was thankful of. Um, but um, we this was in early sixty, early sixty nine. Uh, Nixon had just become president, um, and he he needed body counts. He desperately needed to increase the body counts for satisfying domestic concerns about the war. In other words, we're, are we winning the war or not based on how many are being killed? So uh, for a short while, really just a week, uh, on a special assignment, I went to assess uh, bombings um, of targets, which uh, I never, and I'd been in the country five weeks, and never, I never thought about what a target was, other than you think of a military target as a base. But in Vietnam, there were no targets except people. So what I discovered in, in um, this special assignment, uh, within my special assignment, um, was that the bombings were inhabited, undefended villages. Uh, most everybody was killed, asphyxiated, burned, um, and the vast majority of the people that I saw were young children. So this was in uh, April of 69. Well, I wasn't uh, an activist really, but I was so disturbed by what I had witnessed that I made a special effort to go to headquarters Air Force at uh, Tansanut, which was at, in Saigon. And I wanted to examine the bombing reports, however, the, however they were reporting bombings. And um, I discovered along with a couple of intelligence officers that every bombing and every target was of a village, uh, at least of, of the ones that I had witnessed, and everybody was considered 
an enemy or a Vietnamese enemy, either a Viet Cong, which was a derogatory term that the U.S. used for the National Liberation Front, uh, or just a gook. And so I said, well, this isn't, this isn't, these are mostly children. How, how can you be calling them enemy? And it was really just a normalization of the, of the language and the policy. And there was no questioning. There was no disturbance. They might be children. It was just, uh, it was policy to kill as many Vietnamese as we could. And that was a point at which I, uh, I started thinking even I was 27 at the time, thinking that maybe I should look more carefully into the history of my own country, going back to the 1600s. Maybe this behavior is endemic to our, our, our culture, to our history, to our, uh, in my case, white exceptionalism, uh, Christian nationalism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, maybe it's always been uh, pretty barbaric. Uh, and I had never thought about it before. Um, but after I, after I left Vietnam, which was um, after five months, I was sent home because I, I was sent home early because I was, uh, apparently because I was speaking out against the war on a regular basis. I wasn't doing anything in particular other than talking to superior officers about the illegality of the war. Um, I finished law school and began my long history of reading history, of um, realizing that I had been pretty dumbed down. I was pretty stupid, really, uh, in terms of being able to ask searching questions about anything. Uh, it's pretty easy as a white male, uh, six foot three, uh, of European descent, uh, growing up in the West during, certainly after the, during, after World War II, uh, it was like, well, everything's fine. Uh, we we're in charge and I don't need to worry too much about anything except getting a career and making money. But a after my Vietnam experience, I was really interested in justice and fairness. And I just, discovered the more that I read <clears throat> about the origins of the uh, Eurocentric invasion of the new world, starting in the early 1600s, um, and what how we treated the indigenous and then the uh, Africans, basically stealing the land and, <clears throat> and the labor in order to develop our prosperity, I realized that I had been taught a lie about our history. And that just made me really angry. Mm. And that kind of morphed into my being a much more in, inquisitive person. Um, um, I, I wasn't interested in advance of being an activist, but you wind up being an advocate for certain things you think are right and just, and you become an activist or called an activist sometimes a radical, but you really, I'm just asking questions and searching for the truth, which I knew I had not been taught in, in grade school, high school, uh, college or graduate school. Mm -hmm. So that's, that kind of uh, was the basis upon which 
I have lived my life for, for the last 50 years. Yeah, um, and I know that you've engaged in several incidents of nonviolent anti-war activity and including going on a really long fast, I, if this is in 86, uh, to remind people of the unlawful and immoral policies. And then in 1987, there was the episode where you sat on tracks, train tracks, to, to stop a train loaded with supplies and munitions to block lethal weapons from getting into El Salvador and, and Nicaragua, you know, to, to support actions against them. Could, could you just briefly describe how that episode went? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1986, uh, after having been, <clears throat> excuse me, after having been in Nicaragua for several months in 86, meeting other veterans who had also been uh, other Vietnam veterans who had also had met in Nicaragua who were there curiously studying the, the Sandinista revolution and discovering how brutal the Reagan's Contras were. We, four of us decided to go on a water only open-ended fast. We actually uh, didn't initially think that we would survive because the fast was really uh, an addressing uh, the emergency moral degradation of the United States culture that um, would continue to murder people around the world without, without pause, without any serious opposition. So we started uh, that fast on uh, September 1st, 1986. And we were planning to be open-ended unless there was a huge outpouring of dissent in the streets against Reagan's policies. Now, we didn't, didn't notice any overwhelming response to our fast, although we, we had a fairly significant response. We were on the Phil Donahue show, um, but we didn't expect that we would survived the fast. But one of our members got very sick after 45 days. And on the 47th day, we decided either we're all going to die or we're going to come off the fast to save uh, the vet that was already sick. So at 47 days, we ended the fast. Um, and this was in protest of Reagan's Contra War in, in Nicaragua and his death squad war in El Salvador. So uh, I continued to go to, to Nicaragua after that. Uh, I went into war zones a lot to document what the countries were doing. Um, and some, sometimes with other veterans, not armed, just totally unarmed. And then um, we kind of figured that Congress, the United States Congress, which is so weak, uh, really weak, uh, and it's even weaker now, uh, was not doing enough to stop the funding for the war. So we decided that we would find the location where the weapons were coming from in the United States to El Salvador and Nicaragua. And that happened to be the Concord Naval Weapons Station in Concord, California, about 35 miles east of San Francisco. So in uh, June of 1987, we began a daily vigil at 
that base, which morphed into blocking the trucks carrying the weapons out of the base to the ships where they were being loaded to go to El Salvador, and the trains on tracks parallel to the road where the trucks were driving. And that morphed into um, a, um, <clears throat> a plan of mine and two other veterans on September 1st, which was the anniversary of the fast of the year before, that we would fast on the tracks for 40 days, not open-ended, on water only for 40 days. And we knew the penalty for that was a year in prison and a $5,000 fine. So I figured I was going to go to prison along with the other two veterans that was with me on the tracks. Well, uh, <clears throat> I didn't know at the time that uh, one of the other veterans and myself was considered a domestic terrorist suspect. Uh, and that got, went back to the fast in 86. And, and we were told, well, the FBI said that they found 500 incidents of people protesting in solidarity with the fast against Reagan's policy. And they were concerned and worried that we were, we were causing uh, a movement. Somehow they called that uh, terrorism. Uh, of course, we were just drinking water. Um, and, but, but that's when the investigation had begun, unbeknown to us. Uh, of course, it wouldn't have occurred to us. So in 1987, when we were sitting on the tracks, the very first day of the 40-day fast, and the train speed limit five miles an hour, with a protocol of what to do when people are on the tracks to have us arrested. Uh, none of the protocol happened. Uh, we, the train sped up to three times the speed limit. It went, it was going maybe 17 miles an hour, according to the video footage. And I didn't get out of the way in time. Um, I, the other two guys just barely got out of the way and I lost my legs and fractured skull, broken shoulder, broken elbows, broken ribs. Um, in fact, I didn't think I was gonna survive. Uh, but um, with the help of good medical people and a lot of friends and emotional support, uh, after 29 days in the hospital, I, I left with a walker and two prosthetic legs and I've just continued doing my work. Um, very, um, you know, with, with a different kind of a body, but um, the same kind of uh, concern about justice and realizing that the United States, the country of my birth and upbringing, was an imperial hegemon. It was a, it uh, uh, it knows no limits, and it's, it, and it never knew any limits going back to the 1600s in terms of savagery, uh, vindictiveness, violence, deceit, and so forth. So, you know, it's frustrating, but uh, I, to me, it's not complicated. I'm simply advocating for a just society for the world and starting with my own country, so which, has never, which has never been interested in justice, uh, despite the rhetoric. 
So it sounds like uh, even having gone through this tremendously difficult recovery from your the train accident, the real tough part is coming to grips with uh, this, uh, I guess, white supremacist uh, sort of uh, the injustice you speak of. Yeah, it was not an it was not an accident, by the way. It was a very intentional act, uh, an attempted murder, you could say. The, the train crew was ordered that day. We discovered not to stop. Uh, we found that out in, in depositions, but, um, of course I grew up in a small town, 300 people in the fifties during the cold war, when the brainwashing was pretty intense about communism being, uh, the ultimate, uh, threat to peace and freedom. And also the golden era of capitalism, World War II, the 70s. And in addition, the United States took great pride in having defeated the Nazis in World War II, even though it was the Russians that did the bulwark of defeating the Nazis. But we like, we like to take full credit for it. So it was an era in my upbringing where it was kind of a euphoria, especially if you were a white male. Uh, we beat the Nazis. We convinced ourselves. We were in a golden era of capitalism. We were now everybody had a refrigerator and, a, and instead of an outhouse, a toilet, a flush toilet. Uh, and we knew we had J. Edgar Hoover protecting us from the communists. I mean, this is, and I was in a, you know, I grew up in a conservative Baptist church. So that that was very significant in molding my philosophy, my way of thinking about the world, which didn't really radically change until I, I was in the military and especially in Vietnam. Um, but oh, most of my friends that I grew up with in a small town, we had lots of fun playing. They're all white supremacists now, mm. as far as I can tell uh, from Facebook and uh, Googling their names. My good friends from 50 and 60 and 70 years ago, uh, it's very amazing that, that how easily uh, we become hypnotized into exceptionalism without questioning anything. Yeah. Which is what I had been. Yeah. Uh, well, just to wind off though, I mean, Veterans Day is, is this week, uh, a time to honor veterans who've served their country in wartime. and. Uh, I, I guess I have my, my question for you is what is your response when faced with this occasion and, and what message do you hope to communicate to other people? Well, I don't call it Veterans Day. I call it Armistice Day, which was its original name after World War I. And uh, even Congress declared it as an official holiday of Armistice Day until uh, 1954 when the veterans uh, organized and said, we want a Veterans Day, not an Armistice Day, which means they really wanted a pro-war day to glorify war rather than glorifying the ending of war. So I've, I've always been very um, anxious around this time of year because I don't go to those events unless they're called Armistice Day. I, and, and I know you're from Canada, so 
the language <clears throat> might be a little different, but in the United States, it's a glorification of war day. It's kind of like uh, being thanked for your service all the time, which is really a pro-war statement. My service was not service. It was um, a disservice to the Vietnamese people. It was disservice to the uh, notion of freedom and democracy. It was a disservice to truth. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, and I, that's not the way I grew up, but I had to finally tell my family, my, my relatives, my parents, I had to tell them in the 70s that everything I've been taught about the United States is not true, including the revolution, the constitution, and so forth. And I, uh, of course, that meant that I had to deal with being ostracized within my own family. But I couldn't help it because I, it's like once the tube is, once the paste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Okay, thank you for having me. With Brian Wilson, uh, his, uh, he's a longtime uh, veteran for peace and he's also a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Eve Engler is an activist living in Montreal and the author of a dozen books, now mostly dealing with the problematic foreign policy most Canadians don't know about. His latest book deals with the myths and realities of the Canadian forces in particular. He joined me in conversation earlier this week to describe the book entitled Stand on Guard for Whom? People's History of the Canadian Military. This is another book about foreign policy, foreign affairs, but this is the first one where you do so from uh, the standpoint of our history of militarism. Was studying up on the topic more challenging than, than any of the other books you've written? Uh, no, well, the, the thing about military history is, uh, is it's, there, are, there are thousands of books about the Canadian military, right? So, so almost all of the, you know, I'm sure there's much more out there that hasn't been written about, but almost, you know, there's just tons of critical information that has been written about. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, to, to a certain extent uh, in this book, I just sort of, you know, go through what's been written and, uh, and sort of uh, bring forward the kind of critical information. If anything, I would have to say, though, though I went through a lot of research in this book, um, it probably wasn't as exhaustive as some of the other books I've written because there just is so much out there that to, to, to go through all of it um, is, is just, uh, is just too, too much work. Um, so, so, you know, I think that, that nothing, nothing that I, that I, uh, cover in the book is, um, is in, in, you know, one sense, particularly groundbreaking. I think what it is, is just bringing together a kind of complete picture of, of what the Canadian military is about. And, and I, I think that that's, um, not a, not a very nice, uh, picture. It's rooted in a British imperial outfit. Um, this is different than when, say, the Americans organized themselves around the idea of defending home and hearth from a, a foreign force or, or resistances in established countries uh, cobbled together a fighting force. Um, it was established and appeared for a long time as the local version of a British fighting force. Would it be correct to say this force was the strongest 
bind of, of Mother Earth, England to Canada and also the most reluctant to let go? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know if it's, uh, I mean, I think what you said is absolutely correct in terms of the history of the Canadian military. And, it, and it's a, a thing that I don't think no one disputes, right? Like the naval base in Halifax, the naval base in Esquimalt were former British bases that were given to the Canadian Navy. In fact, we still even have Royal in the name of the Canadian Air Force and, and the Navy. So, so the roots of it being as them it being the British military is, is, is not up for debate. Um, the fact that the British military was you know, conquering the world, including uh, Turtle Island, what is now Canada, uh, and that, that this force is what was doing that conquering, um, is, uh, it really isn't, isn't something that's particularly controversial either. Um, it's generally not uh, discussed that 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 was that you know that's the roots of the Canadian military. They're not, they're not, the two things are not put together of uh, the roots being British and the roots and the British being a force of global empire. Um, so, but in terms of the the the, the specific question, of, it, it was this the most important institution in 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 maintaining? I think that probably is correct. Uh, I haven't actually uh, really you know compared it to the other institutions, but. But it is it is into you know decades into you know post confederation where the Canada has an has its own military right it's it's, it's a British force until you know until decades later um, and so so yes it, it really is like Britain uh, 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 you know maintaining influence within Canada or. Uh, through the military and 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 uh, and and you know in in many ways it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, you know the Canadian military really is just uh, an appendage of the British military until World War II. Um, uh, so so the uh, the the link between the Canadian military and like I said having Royal in the name even up, up until today still speaks to how uh, kind of uh, tied even though I kind of. Ironically, now the Canadian military is really just an appendage of the American Empire's uh, force. Uh, the there's still sort of this cultural um, uh, connection to to Britain, at least through the name. Um, but no doubt, the military uh, has been a, a important connector between uh, Canada and the British Empire for uh, for for you know decades and decades after uh, after Confederation. Yeah, you mentioned that that it was uh, you. This first job was to to subdue Canada, the Turtle Island, and uh, of course that mostly involved uh, keeping the indigenous people subdued. Uh, as well, I mean, you mentioned later he, he they had a role in keeping labor uh, unrest subdued, which gives you some sense about whose values they really represent. Um, talk if you could about just you know a couple of instances that really you know, magnify this point of where this uh, institution will then defend the interests of a certain section of the uh, population over another section. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the Canadian military is a colonizing uh, institution in its historical roots, and that uh, clearly continues into today. It's not as extreme as it was, you know, a century or so ago. Uh, the Canadian military is also a class institution, uh, and uh, I I didn't know the history before researching this book. I didn't know the history of how the militia had been employed on dozens and dozens of occasions. I think so like 70 occasions between uh, 1867 and, and, and uh, 1933 in suppressing strikes, right? And they were almost 
they were ostensibly it wasn't to suppress the strike, but but uh, in practice it was, and they were called out for you know disturbances. But it was always on 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 the side of the employer against the against the uh, people fighting for a, a union recognition or fighting for a nine hour day or fighting for you know basic uh, what we would consider very basic uh, uh, work conditions uh, today. Um, and 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 to a large extent, I, I think it's less direct. I mean, at that point, the, the employers were were literally paying for the uh, militia to be, you know, uh, uh, put up at a at a hotel and paying for the the, the cost of the militia. So you know, it was quite explicit that they, it was being uh, used on behalf of uh, capital against labor. Um, so it's not as explicit today, but it it remains a a class institution, and and you see that in different forms. For instance, with the honorary colonels, right, or honorary generals, they're they're um, they're often people like uh, Jeff Molson here, the you know the, the heir to the Molson Brewery and the owner of the Montreal uh, Canadiens, and and, uh, and these you know the Desmarais uh, on the Vultugeur, uh, the Quebec City um, uh, force. Uh, so so it remains it remains this uh, uh, class institution, the generals. After they retire, uh, they often go work for, you know, top positions in corporate firms, usually in the arms sector, but not not entirely. So, so it remains a a, a, a class institution. Um, so that you know, that's the title of the book. You know, stand on guard for whom? Who is this force for? Right? Is is it for? You know, it's just framed as like defending Canada. Um, but if you if you break it down and you look at who it's who it's defended historically within current day Canada, you'll find that it's not, it's certainly not indigenous people. Uh, uh, it hasn't been, uh, you know, working class people. And then if you go look outside of, of what is current borders of, of Canada, uh, you'll find that, you know, it's not, it's not defending sovereignty of Canada, but in fact, it's defending the interests of, uh, of corporations and, and uh, empire uh, globally. Non-indigenous people went abroad to, to fight wars. And when they came back, interestingly enough, they, expropriated some indigenous land and gave it to the veterans, right? Yeah, the, the, the veteran land grants uh, played a role in, in the, uh, the uh, colonization process and the disposition, dispossession process where, you know, you, those who went and fought in, during World War, War, War I got, I think it was 1,600 hectares or 600 acres when they, when they, some of that land was already land that had been, had been expropriated from indigenous people. But in some instances, it really was taken directly from, from reserves. And and uh, and it was often land that was you know considered better for agricultural purposes, but but it goes you know beyond that the the military itself um, has expropriated incredible amounts of land from and and they went in some instances they've been they've given the land back they've been forced to give the land back but they often give it back when it, the land's been you know full of pollutants from the ordnance from the bullets from the uh, all the you know basically damaged uh, land. Most infamously, uh, the the you know Ipper Watch uh, 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 battle where Dudley George was killed by the uh, Ontario police. That was over land that was uh, uh, taken for for the military, and it was promised to be returned after World War II. And it took, I think, is only returned about uh, six or seven years ago. Um, uh, so, so there is this whole history of, of, you know, the military was involved in the colonization to, to, as a force of arms, uh, as a way to, you know, suppress indigenous people. Uh, but it was all, also part of the colonization process through its role in, you know, in directly taking uh, 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 land from, from First Nations. Uh, and then also that wars um, 
uh, and those who fought in wars abroad, uh, it, 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 it was, uh, they were compensated with, uh, with land, uh, some of which had already been expropriated and some of it was directly expropriated from, uh, from reserves. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned in there too, that, uh, even some of the residential schools were used as a part of a man, a means of, uh, training them for this specific shoot. You, you give several examples of Canadian forces fighting first and foremost for the British Empire, not for freedom. Uh, even the Second World War, which you say was the only morally justified war, you say, as a means of ending the fascist threat of Hitler. But, uh, but the aims of the U.S. government and the Canadian government were not those same aims, you know, anti-Semitism or, uh, you know, fighting against fascism and so on. Could could you explain that for our our general listenership? Yeah, I argue that the, there's only one war that Canada has been involved in that you could argue was morally justifiable. And that's World War II. Now, now, uh, there was many things that the Canadian government, the American government, British government, others did in the lead up that could have averted the war. The one obvious thing is not either allowing or, or enabling uh, the fascists to win in, in, in Spain uh, with the Spanish Civil War. And in many different ways, Canada uh, um, you know, didn't, certainly didn't side with democracy in Spain. Um, uh, also, uh, if you look at the you know colonial policies in Asia. Uh, so there's there's many different ways in which which uh, the the World War II uh, could have been avo- averted by you know better Canadian policy uh, and U.S. and other, other countries' policy. But but once the situation had reached this where where it had um, uh, by the by the late 30s uh, um, the the you know defeating uh, uh, Nazi expansionism was was a was a was a was a good thing. They didn't join Canada didn't join World War II, as you mentioned, because they wanted to fight fascism or because they were concerned with Hitler's anti-Semitism. Or they joined because basically Nazi expansionism became a threat to to British power, uh, and so it was really to defend the the British Empire. Um, uh, many ways in which the war was fought were incredibly uh, immoral, uh, you know, the, the bombing of, of German cities, the, the uh, reinforcing of, of British, French, other uh, colonial rule in Africa and Asia. Um, uh, there's many ways in which the war was fought that, were, that weren't, uh, that were immoral, but I, but, I, but I argued the only war you could argue that has, you know, there, there, there was ultimate, there was an ultimate justification in, in, in pursuing was World War II. If you look at, if you look at Canada's dispatching of troops to, uh, to, to, to uh, um, South Africa in 1899, I mean, that was just pure uh, imperial uh, support for imperial U- or British control of South Africa, mining interests. Uh, if you look at World War I, it's just total you know, madness. And right now we're in Remembrance Day. The, the you know the poppies this 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 is a this is a poem that was basically calling on people to support the World War One effort and and the Remembrance Day uh, uh, in large part you know it comes out of World War One um, and uh, and so 
this is this, this was a you know total madness that Canada should never have participated in, and or nor nor the other countries. Um, uh, if you look at Korea, you look at the first Iraq War, you look at bombing of former Yugoslavia late '90s, you look at uh, uh, Afghanistan, you look at Libya. Uh, these are all there's there's absolutely no argument for having ever ever participated, um, and and uh, and and this is you know we we should. This is what we should be reflecting on around Remembrance Day. We should be reflecting on the fact that that these wars have been uh, incredibly uh, immoral. They haven't been about freedom. There's no argument to be made that they the the, the that these wars were, were about defending freedom or democracy. The only one that you could make any claim that that was that that that. Uh, had the, had some of that impact, or that there was uh, that they, that that was the effect of is is World War II, uh, and even there that there you know there's a whole lot of background history that needs to be uh, brought up, um, but uh, but so so you know this is the history of the Canadian military, and and uh, and this is how the Canadian military is oriented today, right? The 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 orientation is not to defend. Canadian borders from external threats. The orientation is to how can we align with the U.S. Uh, and NATO uh, uh, world domination. That is how the Canadian military is is organized today. That's how the the weaponry is. That's the motivation that goes into what weaponry is purchased. That is the the thinking of the the, uh, the upper echelon of of the Canadian military. That is their their operations and practice. They're involved in you know, all across the globe today. They're setting up bases, small bases. All you know, the, the plan is to have seven bases around the world and different points all around the world to be better explicitly to be better better able to work with the uh, U.S. military. Um, so so uh, when we when we uh, go into a situation like uh, Remembrance Day, where, where there's all this sort of laudatory discussion about freedom and, and democracy of the, the Canadian military upholding, um, it really is uh, just just uh, just pure propaganda. The Canadian forces are, are getting a bad reputation for the record of, of dealing with racism, sexism and homophobia. I mean, I noticed that, that part of the reason is that in a hierarchical structure, people are less likely to, to report abuse or, or respond to instances of abuse, but they tend to be secretive. Could, could you maybe bring up a, a couple of examples that, that really hammer home this point? Well, the, the military is this incredibly hierarchical institution with all these, uh, um, uh, you know, everyone has different uh, um, uh, badges to represent rank and to, and, and you have to uh, submit to the, those above you. And, and uh, so it's a very authoritarian institution. It's also a, a, a um, highly patriarchal institution. Um, uh, you know, it's only in 2000 that women were allowed uh, to operate in submarines, right? Uh, you know, women were have been excluded from from most of the most military positions for for most of the Canadian military's history. Um, uh, uh, so it's it, it, it's not surprising. I, I mean, I've called the military the you know the embodiment of toxic masculinity. 
um, the institutional embodiment of toxic masculinity in Canada. So it, it, it's it's uh, the we shouldn't be uh, particularly surprised by the these all these stories coming out of uh, sexual assault, sexual misconduct. Um, they the military is also an incredibly enclosed institution, as you mentioned. It has its own um, uh, legal structure internally. And, and it's, uh, it, it doesn't, that, that legal structure just absolutely does not deal well with, with, uh, with accusations of sexual assault. Uh, that, that is absolutely clear at this point. Um, it's been, that's been clear for a long time. Now there's some political uh, m- momentum to, to, uh, to change things. Um, and, and hopefully that, that does, you know, there's, Taking sexual assault that has announced a couple of days ago that you know taking allegations of, of sexual uh, assault, sexual misconduct outside of the the uh, putting it into civilian uh, court, uh, civilian legal structure versus the the military's legal structure. Um, with, with regards to racism, I mean that that's also a, you know quite a fascinating history of just how explicitly racist the Canadian military was, and they they had uh, policies the Air Force. The Navy had policies of only people of pure European descent. These these were explicit policies. Uh, these um, they they you know it wasn't always that they were they were they were um, followed a hundred percent. There were um, uh, some uh, uh, slight. Um, uh, you know, there are some examples of of, of non white people who got into uh, positions. Um, but but th- these were on the books. These were on the books until the mid 1950s, um, and uh, and there's never been any any real uh, effort to uh, you know some form of uh, of um, of, uh, of uh, advancement for people uh, you know racialized uh, people affirmative action kind of policies. Um, they uh, so. It, it, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. The other, you know, the after the uh, discussion of sexual assault, there's been a certain amount of discussion about, um, you know, far right neo-Nazi types uh, uh, joining the Canadian military in, in, in recent years. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that an institution that had very explicit white supremacist policies uh, 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 on its books. Uh, uh, that's highly authoritarian. Um, that they're you know far right uh, individuals are attracted to that institution. Uh, that shouldn't be a, a surprise. I mean, we have, you know, we have the whole Somalia uh, uh, a scandal in the early 1990s, where these neo Nazis obviously uh, you know killed uh, people in Somalia, but then also it just came out of the the uh, the uh, neo Nazi sympathies. Of uh, those in the in the airborne regiment, um, so so the the racist, uh, sexist, uh, the homophobic. That's another part. You know, the the military had had um, was funding and had their scientists uh, uh, trying to develop what they called you know a fruit machine to detect supposedly to scientifically detect uh, gay people in the late sixties and early seventies. Just this is you know just extremist homophobic uh, policies and they 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 purged um uh, uh gay gay members uh right in, right until the early 90s and even after they were forced to change the you know the head of the military was basically 
um, saying they were going to continue with a, with an informal uh, uh, homophobic policy. So the military represents uh, social and cultural values uh, that are, uh, quite frankly, regressive. Uh, these are not social and cultural values that, um, that I think most Canadians believe in. And uh, certainly not most, you know, progressive, uh, you know, liberal or, 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 or left uh, 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 Canadians, um, and uh, and I think that to a large extent, it's sort of it been the military's kind of been left to its own to its own. It's only when this, you know, the scandals get so kind of out of hand, like we're seeing right now with the with the uh, sexual assault, uh, where, where you know, much of the hierarchy of the military is 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 engulfed in, in different. Uh, 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 accusations. Um, it's only when things get so out of hand that the the uh, government finally uh, steps in with what with, with what are ultimately fairly modest uh, reforms. And and so there's modest reforms about okay, we'll we'll take sexual assault and and put it into the the civilian legal structure. But there's no discussion of well, should we really be spending thirty billion dollars on this institution that 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 promotes so many uh, uh, regressive uh, uh, social values. There's no, there's never, I haven't seen any connection between the, you know, sexism in the military and all this discussion of sexism in the military and any questioning of, well, should we continue funding it at such a, such an extreme level where the military is getting something like 15 times more uh, public resources than environment and climate change Canada. There's a tremendous amount of damage done to the environment as a result of the, uh, of the military. The old ships dumping the fuels in the oceans, uh, uh, detection stations emitting immense amounts of PCBs, arsenic and other toxic uh, substances on the dew online. online. Um, and incredibly for all the high sounding talk about addressing climate change, 59% of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada come from the Department of National Defense, and they're not bound by restrictions like everybody else's. So, so with all of that, how is it that this institution can continue to prevail the way it does? The climate question is just absolutely remarkable, right? That the, the 59% of greenhouse gas emissions coming from the military, the it's excluded with Trudeau's you know, big statements around net zero, the military is excluded. So, so 60% of, of, of all federal government uh, 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 carbon emissions are being excluded from the, from the discussion uh, around net zero. It makes just a, the whole net zero objective in of itself is uh, problematic and, and, and what they really mean by that. And then, and then excluding, you know, 60% just further makes a, a mockery of it right now. In Glasgow, there's the Conference of Parties uh, climate negotiations going on, and at the international level, also the military is excluded from uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. You know, the, those you know making food or, or schooling people, the, we count the the uh, uh, you know greenhouse gas emissions for those things, but we don't count the greenhouse gas emissions for this institution designed to kill and to destroy. You know, it's really the whole priorities flipped upside down. Um, and but, you know, that's just one element. Uh, the obviously warfare is incredibly ecologically damaging. And I and I, 
I go through that, you know, in, in parts of France, uh, you, you still today, World War I, the, all the destruction from World War I is still, you know, there's zones you can't go into uh, because of that. Um, you know, right up until today, you, you know, some of what happened in Libya, Canada's bombing of Libya and the, uh, the great uh, 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 water aquifer uh, system that was, I think, 70% of Libya's water was uh, uh, destroyed uh, in the in the bombing, um, and uh, everything you know from from just the, the killing of animals, right? There's just horrific uh, uh, stories about what the treatment of of animals by uh, the Canadian military and you know, them being killed, and you know, um, right up today, you know, recently in Afghanistan, to testing on animals, um, the destruction of of uh, of uh, water systems of lakes from from firing of shells and and and, and different uh, ordnance uh, at the bottom of of lakes, There's dozens and dozens uh, uh, examples across across the country. So it's very, it's a, it's a very um, ecologically damaging um, institution, and but it, but it, it it gets almost no attention from from green groups, which is a little bit ironic since Greenpeace, it, you know, the one of the most famous groups is you know has peace in its name, right? Part of its roots are as being anti-militarist, um, but the the anti-militarism, uh, I think that's very much been left aside uh, by most of the uh, the green movement in uh, in recent years, maybe as it's become more mainstream. Um, and, uh, and so, so yeah, so I mean, just just from from ecological standpoint, uh, we should be discussing uh, uh, defunding the Canadian military. Um, uh, but you know that isn't being discussed. Uh, there is campaigning, like World War War. There is a campaign around making, um, um, bringing militaries into uh, into the cli- international climate negotiations. Um, there's, uh, 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 you know, I think some some uh, the, the the campaign against the uh, purchasing 88 new uh, fighter jets for a sticker price of 19 billion and something up to 77 billion over their life cycle. That campaign is putting uh, the climate question of that purchase front and center because these are heavy, heavy uh, fuel, heavy carbon emitting uh, fighter jets, and also the whole question of we could use those resources for uh, for a just transition, getting off of uh, uh, fossil fuels, and 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 uh, and you know these these are social resources that are needed for that for that transition. Um, but but for the most part, the ecological uh, questions of uh, of Canadian militarism um, I haven't really got that uh, that much attention. That was Montreal-based author and activist Eve Engler highlighting his book Stand on Guard for Whom? A People's History of the Canadian Military. If you live in British Columbia, be sure to check out his current book tour at the site eveengler.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.